Hello, and welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Bow Technology. My name is Dan Feeney, and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder, and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Bow Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I want to take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast, a new podcast from the Free Trail Network, sponsored by Boa Technology. I'm your host, as always, Dan Feeney. And in this podcast, we're dissecting the fundamentals of peak performance from gear, the biomechanics of footwear to the physiology of training. We're going to focus on challenging decades and in some cases, even older assumptions that industry professionals, scientists and whomever have made. Today, I'm really excited because we have Jesse Frank here. Jesse Frank did his master's and undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder, working with the legendary Roger Crom, where he did a number of different projects, trying to build a mobile gravity-reducing cart that I would love to touch on a bit later, studying how various bike seats affect cycling comfort and performance, and very notably, he was a co-author on the Nike 4% study. Over the past five years, Jesse's worked at Specialized, where he's had an experience in the wind tunnel, studying how different bike fits could impact athlete performance, as well as a variety of other factors working with professional athletes. Today, really the focus is going to be understanding how subject-specific and professional athlete-specific modifications can actually improve or enhance performance. A lot of times that's actually pretty different from what we see in science, where we're looking at group means across um, a wide number of people, but it isn't hyper-specific. Fun facts, Jesse is also a 229 marathoner, triathlete, and he was the officiant at my wedding. Jesse's is right. I'm sure you still regret that decision. <laughs> we'll see. Everybody can judge at the end of this if they think he'd be a good officiant or not. Um, Jesse's between roles right now, and while I can't say what's next just yet, it's likely going to be known by the time this airs out. So welcome, Jesse. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm excited to have a nice little chat with you. Awesome. So I'd love to jump right in by starting to talk about, especially what you did over the last five years, you were at a number of athlete training camps, you hosted a number of athletes at Specialized in the Wind Tunnel, and in many cases, you were trying to optimize an individual athlete's performance with respect to gear or with respect to their maybe physiology or training. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what some of the processes were behind that, and then we'll get into some specifics? Absolutely. I think the the best place to start is is with the wind tunnel itself. Um, for, for the audience who may not be familiar with the world of cycling, there's a discipline in cycling called the time trial, or in triathlon, where athletes are on a time trial triathlon bike, focusing on an aerodynamic position with their um, kind of torso more forwardly flexed and forearms over the handlebars. Uh, and in this position, as I mentioned, the goal is to be as aerodynamic as possible and decrease your coefficient of drag so you can slip through the air a little bit faster and lead to better performances. And so Specialized, where I was previously working, had a company-owned wind tunnel out in California, and we would bring athletes in to optimize their position on the bike. Uh, and in the past, when time trial positions first became popular, it was kind of like a video game getting into the wind tunnel, where athletes would, would go into the tunnel, they'd get into their position, and then they would see the, the coefficient of drag, and they try and get that number as low as possible, even though that might not be realistic. So they would get back out in the real world. They might ride their bike for 5 or 10 or 15 minutes out on the roads and realize their position isn't actually comfortable. It might be fast, but it might not be comfortable. And you're only aerodynamic if you're actually in the aero position. So our goal was to find a position for an athlete that was optimizing both a combination of aerodynamics along with comfort and ability to see up the road and a couple other metrics and not just try to get as low as possible. Yeah. And so, you know, to your point, if you can't hold that really idealistic position, you're not going to be able to reap the benefits. And I think this plays a lot in the trail running space too, in the road running to some extent, right? Um, you'll see in theory, a really, really light shoe should have a low metabolic cost or it should be really ec economical to run in. Um, but a lot of times people might struggle depending on their gait and features like that. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the modifications you might make that would be wildly different for a given athlete compared with maybe what we would just expect to see based on the scientific literature of, of bike fitting or of aerodynamics? For sure. I, I think as I, as I got through my, my time at Specialized in the Wind Tunnel, I, I have people, friends, athletes, whoever, emailing me, texting me, hitting me up on Instagram in person, and they would send me photos of, of themselves on the bike and say, what position is faster? Like, picture A or B. And it got to the point where almost everyone I talked to was just, well, it depends. There are some general rule of thumbs, but customization, optimization, personalization of equipment and position, I think, is, is super important. And so the first step for any wind tunnel visit with an athlete is getting a bike fit uh, with the retool technology specialized. Um, and in that retool fit, we just make sure that an athlete is biomechanically set up on the bike to decrease, hopefully, injuries and increase comfort, as well as deal with any existing injuries that they may have or um, nuances or niggles with their with their body, um, especially at the professional level when they're riding 30, 40 hours a week. That can lead to a lot of um, uncomfortable body issues that we try and solve with the bike fit. And then that would kind of give us parameters. Okay, how high up can a, a handlebar position be? How low can a person go in the wind tunnel? Um, to give us kind of bounce to, to test inside the wind tunnel. And so we'd always start off with the retool fit, go into the wind tunnel, test handlebar staff height, how high or low the arm pads are, and that's going to affect torso angle, back angle, and a lot of times ability to produce power. And once we dial in a position, we can then go into equipment changes. We can go on to hand position, uh, extension length. So uh, in a time trial bike, uh, the riders have the forearm on a pad, and then there's something called an extension with shifters at the end that a rider can hold on to, and there's different profiles and curvatures to those extensions. So we can go in and not necessarily customize, but there are existing extension um, shapes that we can put on for an athlete and see which one feels better. Does it allow them to get their head lower because they're more comfortable and can kind of grab against that extension? So we're, we're able to modify the position on the bike and then go into specific things such as what helmet is fastest. Uh, back in the day, you'd see these really, really long-tailed aero helmets that come over and like, hit your mid-back. Nowadays, you see much shorter helmets. Um, and we, when I was at Specialized, the helmet team designed their newest time trial helmet around two specific athletes from the Quickstep team. And so it's a much shorter uh, helmet in terms of where it lands on the back. So at the, at the elite, elite level, if you get a company that's willing to back you, you can actually go in and design a product around a, a person's I think that's a really cool feature that you keep talking about. And it's a really interesting dichotomy between trail running, road running, and cycling. I think in the running space, we see so many scientific articles talking about group level effects. Can you decrease injury risk? Can you increase somebody's running economy? However, at the individual level, there's far less, there are far fewer services where people can actually go in and find these optimizations for themselves. On the flip side, in cycling, there are very few studies that I know of that would talk about how a bike fit might decrease injury risk or increase performance, but it's sort of taken for granted. Of course, it's going to do that. And maybe that has a little bit of a deal with the cost of the, the equipment and the expected return on such a big investment relative to running shoes. But could you maybe talk about some of the areas where you could imagine this personalization could go into specifically trail running? how we might change sort of the in-store experience or the athlete experience, whether it be in a running shop to get fit for product or whether it could be out um, in a secondary type service. I think one of the first things that comes to mind, and it's it could be used in the trail running space. It might be a little more relevant in the road running space, and I'll kind of branch off to, to get more to trail running. But you and I have talked about this, dinners at your house or on runs, and if you look at the the 4% study that I was a co-author on looking at uh, a, the Nike Vaporfly prototype back in the day versus the standard marathon shoes of the day. It was a Nike I think, Street Fly and like a Adidas Adi Zero Boost or something. The Adios. Um, the Adios Boost, thank you. We went in and we tested those shoes back to back to look at changes in running economy on the same day with the same athlete at different running speeds. And from there, the whole point of that study was to say which shoe, if any, is going to lead to an improvement in running economy. And as I said, we, we've talked about this you know, outside of this podcast where how cool would it be if you could go into a running shop or some kind of lab or some consumer setting where you could either bring in shoes that you have bought 
if you're considering racing a road marathon or a trail marathon, bring in shoes that you've bought and figure out which one is best for you by doing some metabolic testing. Um, I think there's less factors at play in road marathon, which is why that might be a little bit easier to do. On the trail side, you could still do that with various shoes and see if any of the shoes increase metabolic efficiency. But what if you were to look at different traction in a, in a trail shoe, different soles? You know, could you do something in a lab or out in the field and see, okay, we know Western States has this type of course profile and it's this type of surface. You know, it's it's granite or it's slick rock. Which of these shoes is going to lead to the best traction for a specific runner? I think that could be um, a super cool way of going about it. Again, there's a lot more variables in the trail running space, um, but I think that could be that could be pretty fun. I also think about running vests or sports bras. Uh, obviously, I'm, I am a, a male and don't have to use sports bras, but in talking to women uh, when I was at Specialized, trying to figure out if sports bras was something that Specialized should look at for apparel. There's obviously very different um, needs for different women in sports bras. And so could you go in and actually personalize how a garment fits an individual woman? Could you personalize a running vest for people that have poor flexibility like myself? When I'm, when I'm in a cycling kit, I have to put my snacks in my left pocket because my right shoulder flexibility isn't good enough that I can reach my pocket very quickly, right? And so for a running vest, do you take that into account and design pockets in certain places that it's more accessible for certain athletes? I'm really talking about that hyper-specific specialization, you know, even left and right sides for running vests. Um, I'm curious why you think – you mentioned that there are more factors at play in trail. Why you think that that could be more challenging, you know, other than running economy – what would be some things you'd like to measure and traction in trail maybe that would be predictive or indicative of performance? Well, again, traction, I think for sure, this might not necessarily tie into performance, but a shoe that is able to accommodate foot swelling. If you look at ultra marathons, especially super long distances, there have been literature showing that feet swell during the course of a race and some ultra marathoners will have their crew with different shoes at aid stations of different sizes to put on and change mid race. Could you look at a shoe that can accommodate that swelling to allow an athlete to not have to waste the time at an aid station, um, changing a shoe. So I think, I think that could be super interesting. Um, I also wonder how foam different foams can have different effects on different trail surfaces. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. Marathons, it's just asphalt on trails, different different surfaces. Yeah, I, th I think there are two really interesting topics coming from there. You, know, you talk about foot swelling. That's something we obviously think about a lot at BOA. Um, you know, one of the namesake shoes that we've come out with in the trail space is the Speedland. The GS Tam is out right now with um, Dylan Bowman's signature shoe. And that shoe, you know, specifically does have a slightly wider last. Um, the dials can turn both ways, much like the specialized and other cycling shoes dials that are out on the market with exactly that in mind. The other thing that I thought of was Zagama was over the weekend, a sort of medium distance trail race. That's one of the biggest races in the world. And this year we saw an incredibly wet and cold and windy event. And it was really interesting to see the athlete shoe choices. Um, instead of seeing a lot of the really fast, we'll say, trail super shoes, we've seen a lot more athletes taking into consideration exactly what you're saying, whether it was shoes with bigger lugs because there's a lot of wet grass sections, um, maybe shoes that weren't quite as light or shoes that were going to help deal with that water input output. So I, I love that point. It's quickly going back to my, my time in the cycling world. In the past for that time trial position, a lot of athletes would get into a wind tunnel, find a single position, and then boom, that's their position, no matter if it's a, a uh, you know, 20K, 40K, 80K, 180K chorus, whether it's flat or hilly or rolling, it was one position. And so I started telling athletes, pulling from, you know, Lord of the Rings, there's not one position to roll them all, right? Depending on the course, depending on the conditions, you might want to raise your stack height a couple centimeters higher for a hillier course or for a longer course to allow you some more capacity to put out power for longer. So I think, I think that's a great point that you bring up for course specific weather specific conditions. Yeah. And, and there is at least sort of a one meta analysis that I'm aware of that we'll link to in the show notes that looks at bike fit and, and injury rate and comfort. And maybe would you want to talk about that at all and what you've learned from that and what you've used for that practically? So the, the big takeaway from that meta analysis was that, 
people who do bike get a bike fit done, whether it's they do a fit themselves or they go see a professional, uh, they decrease their instances of discomfort on the bike and de- decrease their instances of pain, but not necess- it didn't necessarily lead to decreases in injury rate, which I think is an interesting distinction um, in that for bike fit, you can have presence of discomfort, but it might not necessarily lead to an injury, right? And a bike fit, obviously you want to decrease injury, but I think the most important thing is getting a position that is comfortable so that you can actually put out a good performance and not be distracted by anything else. Um, I think that's that's a pretty interesting takeaway. And, and for us, again, this whole idea of a, a bike fit is very personalized. The way the retool system works is it takes some data points from all the fits that are done on the system. And basically it does create uh, group means, what is typically expected to be seen from all the bike fits done. And then it provides ranges for bike fitters. And it's a very nice graphic where it's, if you're inside the range, the numbers are green for the if you're like joint angles. If it's outside of the range, it's red. If it's close to the range, it's yellow. It's a super nice visual, but the super, super experienced bike fitters know that it's okay to be outside of the range for a person who maybe has terrible flexion in their back or for someone who has like a herniated disc. And so that's the whole point is to decrease comfort. And sometimes you have to ignore these group means to make sure that individual is, is in a good position. So I think, I think that is the biggest takeaway for me is there's, there's um, guide rails in bike fit and guide rails and, and what we can call it technology equipment recommendations but you have to be able to, no pun intended, be flexible with who you're working with to make sure that they're in the best setup for themselves. Nice. That, I think that was the first pun you got in on this podcast, which is a record for 16 minutes chatting with Jesse with no no puns. I think it's really interesting what you bring up, that there were reductions in instances of discomfort and pain, however, no change in injury rate. And this is something that has plagued the running industry and, and running research for a long time. In my mind, running industry or injury in general, whether it be on running, cycling, whatever, is incredibly multifaceted. And that makes it very challenging to study from a basic science perspective, which is sort of what we do. We do a lot of reductionist type work where we bring someone into the lab. And to your point, maybe they're on the retool device on a bike. Maybe they're running on an instrumented treadmill with motion capture cameras and we're measuring joint angles. And we know what group means might be indicative of what we think is normal. But to your point, based on somebody's bone geometry and their own skeleton, normal for that person really might not be relevant to exactly what the joint means are. And in my mind, that's why we've never seen a link between injury and any of this gear. I don't believe it's because the link isn't there. I believe it's because we're not doing studies that actually are meant to uncover this link, where we could really look at causality. Um, And so, yeah, you know, I think if you talk with probably those pro riders, you know, would any of them be surprised if you said you think you're going to decrease their injury risk with a bike fit? Would any of them be surprised? Um, you know, I, I think they would be. I, I think they would say, I'm going to get injured because I'm going to crash, right? I mean, look, <laughs> look at the Judah said yesterday. It's pissing rain and they're just sense and riders are crashing and unfortunately breaking hips and whatnot so i think i think for them they're probably most concerned about uh crashing and injury but if i can if i can take a quick tangent here to kind of talk about um surprising professional athletes with some protocols we at specialized develop what we call the, a metabolic fit so this goes goes back to the wind tunnel session where you go in for a retool fit with the biomechanics then you'd go into the wind tunnel for aerodynamics. And I mentioned earlier that we wanted to optimize everything. Aerodynamics, biomechanics, and I also said metabolic efficiency um, and cycling economy. So we developed a protocol where we essentially had an athlete ride a bicycle trainer, stationary, indoors. We set a constant power and uh, on the fit bike without having the rider get off the bike, we can raise and lower the stack height up and down. Ideally looking for a break point where do they go too low or too high? where they need to consume more oxygen. And so we had a, a metabolic cart measuring oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide production to look at this efficiency. And again, the idea being that at a certain point, we expect to see a break point. It's kind of like gas mileage in a car. If you're on a flat road, your gas mileage is going to be 30, let's say. And then you start going up a hill, it's going to shoot down to 18. We want to avoid that decrease in, in gas mileage for the cyclist. That's a really nice First, analogy. 
Did, did you always find one of these? Would you say that was pretty common amongst the athletes you tested? Finding a breakpoint? Yeah. Uh, I would say it's about 50-50, to be honest. I think okay. at an elite, elite level, uh, they, these athletes are very, very adaptable. Mm-hmm. And also over the years, as we learned more about aerodynamics and we educated uh, sport directors, coaches, etc., on this ideology behind metabolic efficiency, let's call it, recycling economy, our bike fitters and those coaches were able to create a better baseline position for a rider. And so we didn't necessarily see these extreme differences because people already knew just about where to set the rider. But the first test we ever did was on a Polish athlete. Came into the, the human performance lab at Specialized. I ran this metabolic test. And we, we brought him from his baseline. We went all the way four centimeters lower and then four centimeters higher. And we found that coming up four centimeters was a marked improvement in uh, in cycling economy for himself. Now he's a professional athlete. At, you know, this was five years ago. In that day, athletes still wanted to get as low as possible. And so we told him, we said, hey, here are your results. When you go in the wind tunnel, let's raise you four centimeters and see what happens. And he goes, no, absolutely not. I will not do that. I'm going to look like an amateur. That is ridiculous. So we said, I understand you're here. He came all the way to California. It'll take three minutes to test. Just entertain us, please. He goes, okay, fine. Get him in the wind tunnel. He does his baseline. We raise him four centimeters. He tests again. And he comes out. And he's like, oh, my God. That was, that was so much better. I could like, I could see up the road, and my shoulders didn't hurt. And we said, well, guess what? Not only was it metabolically better, you were also faster aerodynamically because your shoulders were relaxed, and you could shrug into a more aerodynamic position. So to your point earlier about when you when you introduced this whole the podcast, we're breaking down walls of what people thought and what tradition said. You have to be as low as possible. Not necessarily. So I can't remember why I started telling that story, but it's one of my favorite <laughs> anecdotes from, from my, my five years at Specialized. I, I think, uh, yes, you can still surprise athletes um, with technology. That, yeah, that that's exactly the, the point I was kind of hoping you would go for. First, that not everybody is going to improve in a, – a way that we expect. And we've seen with this with super shoes. We've seen this across a number of different things. And then in cycling, to your point, the old adage was lower to the ground, um, more aerodynamic. It looked fast. And so it must be fast. And then you're presenting a professional level athlete with contrary data. And even for them, it's challenging for them to accept when they make their livelihood on this. Um, I think, you know, Jesse and I run together a lot and you chat with people while you're out running and there are a ton of, um, ideas and concepts about what's good and bad in a running shoe, whether it be from a carbon plate, whether it be for foam. And, you know, most of these things are based on group means. And most people don't really have a good idea of what it actually did for them. I do want to go back um, uh, to two points, depending on what order people listen to this podcast in, they may or may not have a really good idea of actually what cycling or running economy is. Could you maybe give a brief one or two minute overview of exactly what we're measuring and what the measurement error is when we look at cycling or running economy? So I'll speak to cycling economy since that's what I've had the most experience in recently and maybe let you uh, jump in on on running economy just to make sure I don't make any mistakes. But for cycling economy, as as I was mentioning, we have a a metabolic cart on on the rider to measure the oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. And we're also keeping the mechanical power that this rider puts out uh, constant. So you can measure that with a power meter. It's much easier to do in cycling because it is an isometric contraction. It's just against a stationary object. Uh, in running, there are power meters, but that's a, a discussion for a, a separate time. Um, and so when I'm saying cycling economy here, we're basically looking at the, the ratio of um, internal work versus external work. And so in this case, you're looking at, say, uh, mechanical power output of 250 watts. That's the unit we're going to use, powers and watts, similar to what you might see in a light bulb. And then internal, like metabolic power, we can also translate from milliliters per kilogram per minute of oxygen into, uh, into a metabolic watt, essentially. And so let's say an athlete is putting out 1,000 watts of metabolic power. We can look at that ratio, 250 to 1,000, and say, okay, that's 25% efficient if my math serves me correct. And so that's what I'm talking about with, with cycling economy. And it's a very similar metric 
in running, uh, but the way in which you test it and the exact measurements are slightly, slightly different. For sure. And I won't go into all of those details right now, but I think a common misconception, you know, in cycling, we can really talk about efficiency because to your point, we measure the power that's being produced at the pedals. And then internally, we're measuring how much oxygen someone breathes in, like you said, in milliliters per kilogram per minute or some other normalization. And we measure how much carbon dioxide they breathe out. And we use some stoichiometry, a fun high school chemistry <laughs> word, if nobody's thought about that in a while, to come up with exactly how much energy they're using, right? And so you could think of in running, if you can use less energy to run at six-minute pace, seven-minute pace, that means you're more economical. Same deal in cycling. One of the things I've always thought about bike fits, and I've always thought about the difference between a really good road and a really good trail runner, is most of the muscles in our body have what we know as optimized force length and force velocity relationships. And really what that means is a muscle itself, you know, it can contract. So that means its fibers shorten and it produces a force against something. When you're cycling, that might mean that you're pressing against the pedals. When you're running, that means you're just running up the mountain. For some people, if you test this at, you know, the muscle at its extreme length, so if you hold your leg straight out, they generally are not going to have as great of a peak force as when their muscles at an intermediate length. And then again, when you get back down to a really small length, you're also going to not have a great force or power output. In cycling, I think they've leveraged this through bike fits. And so, Jesse, I don't know if you want to talk about if this is something that is actively thought about in cycling or if this is something that maybe is a hidden variable that those group means that you talked about earlier are just getting optimized with these bike fits. And that's why people feel better in their positions. I think it's the latter point there. In my experience, bike fitting, we're not physically measuring any force length or force velocity uh, relationships for, for subjects. Now, something I have certainly talked about with my colleagues at Specialize, I think it's super exciting. I think with, with that metabolic fit that I mentioned earlier, I think that's essentially what we were trying to get at. I think the differences that we see in cycling economy with different stack heights does, to some degree, tie into force length profile. Um, we, for the retool fit and for the metabolic fit, one thing I didn't mention is we always do an intake where we, where we ask a rider cycling history, injury history, and we do flexibility and mobility tests. And what we found to correlate best to a time trial position was a simple hamstring test where you, you stand up straight and then you just bend forward, hinge forward from the hips and let your arms dangle and see how how close your fingertips can get to the ground. It's similar to the, like, I think, physique spine concept is what they call it for their saddle uh, um, saddle prescription, I suppose you could call it for, for a subject. And so I think that flexibility test and then the metabolic test really does get at optimizing force length relationship for an individual. No, we haven't measured it personally or during a bike fit, but I would love to. I would love to commission a study somewhere and look at this to see if it's actually it. And then if it is actually it, is there a way to implement it in real time for a bike fit, for, for a runner uh, running uphill versus flat? Uh, I also wonder, to tie it back to running, I wonder if, if we could measure fourth length, fourth length relationship and see how stack, or not stack height, but uh, heel to toe drop of shoe or mm. orthotics might affect that relationship for an individual and then can we optimize heel the toe drop or op optimize some component of a shoe to optimize a person's fourth length relationship i think that could be super super cool absolutely yeah i mean so what jesse is saying here is if your heel gets raised up a little bit that's going to shorten your calf muscles um which are going to be the primary drivers of what produces a lot of the power when you're running and perhaps for some people they're better at a shorter calf length. And so maybe those people are already predisposed towards having a higher heel to toe drop. And there's a number of other factors maybe that cause that. I think it also probably dictates who um, is better or who decides to walk versus run up certain pitch gradients. Some of the research from Jesse's alma mater, Roger Crom's lab, um, done by Jackson Brill, a, a very talented trail athlete and scientist, has looked at, you know, when is it good for at a group level for people to walk or to run. Um, but I remember talking with him sort of in just some side conversations. There are some crazy people out there that um, maybe just the, their force length velocity relationships on their own personal level lay in such a weird place. They can run up anything. 
Um, and then on the flip side, maybe somebody that's basically a really good hiker, they can hike up even a shallow gradient, but really darn fast. Um, I, I think this is all super fascinating. One of the other things that Jesse has taught me over the years, we've talked a lot about um, perception and maybe picking things out based on what feels best. And, you know, to kind of set the stage here, I worked in a running store for a long time and I thought my job, and I still think the job at a running shop is to find a set of shoes that the consumer could then pick from, sort of narrow down the subset of that entire shoe wall that's going to be good for them. You know, you fit a ton of people all day, every day. Maybe you're able to fit um, a specific athlete based on how it looks like they're moving or based on their background. And then they typically choose a shoe based on what they find or report to be their most comfortable or springy. Um, however, people are notoriously not great at actually distinguishing these things. And so Jesse taught me about something called the triangle test. And maybe, Jesse, could you give a brief overview of what the triangle test is, where it comes from, and maybe why it's applicable? I would love to. I also want to preface this by saying I by no means am an expert in perception science. This is something I read about when I was a master's student in Roger Com's lab working on my master's thesis and have taken lessons from this test along with me through my, my professional career. But in, in talking to some perception scientists towards the end of my time at Specialized, there may be better or different ways to um, get at perception from a, a human subject. That's a story for another time. Again, I need to learn more about that, but I still love the triangle test. Where I got this from is from the food industry. So let's use Coca-Cola and Pepsi as an example. Let's say Pepsi is creating a new flavor and they want to, sorry, they're changing the ingredients in a classic recipe, but they want to make sure the flavor does not change. And so what they want to do is go to a bunch of subjects and say, here, taste, taste these samples. Tell us if you can see any change or taste any change in, in the samples. And so one way to do that would be to have three samples of drink. You would have two samples that have the old recipe and one sample that has a new recipe. And the subject would then go through take a sip of each drink, do a little wash out in between. And at the end of each set of three, they'd have to tell the researcher or write down which sample they thought was different. So perhaps an easier way to think of that would be going back to Coke and Pepsi. If you're just at home and you have your, whoever you're living with, a friend, spouse, whatever, put out three cups of drink in a cardboard box so you can't see. Two are Pepsi, one is Coke. You sip all three and you have to tell which one is, is the Coca-Cola. And the idea being that you do multiple rounds of these three taste tests to get to a level of confidential level of significance, saying that, okay, after someone can correctly guess the odd drink out five out of six times, let's say, then they have a very sensitive palate and are a good tester. They have good perceptive abilities. And so that's something we took into the cycling world when I was doing research on saddle comfort. Okay, we want to understand comfort, but do we want people who are just throwing darts at a wall and have no accuracy and saying, okay, I think saddle A is better. Or do we want people that we can confidently trust and know can tell the difference in saddles? And so what we did for the cycling industry was we took two separate saddles, put a box over it, got these basketball dribble goggles. So uh, athletes actually couldn't see down if they were looking down and had them sit and ride for five minutes at a time and then tell us which saddle they thought was different after a round of three. It turns out, People are not very good at percepting differences in saddle, barring like extreme differences. Like if you were to take a saddle that had a long nose versus a short nose, anyone could tell the difference. But if you just two very similarly shaped saddles, uh, I think it was less than 25% of the subjects we tested were able to discern a difference. And we tested 50 people, I want to say. So uh, quite quite difficult in, in that realm of, of the cycling world to, to tell a difference. I was one of the participants in the test that could not tell a difference. And I remember being kind of flabbergasted about how challenging it was. In running footwear, we really struggle to blind people, as you might imagine, because putting some glasses on somebody while they run so they can't see the ground is maybe not the safest option. A lot of times people either need to dial in or tie their shoes, and that's hard for the experimenter to do. But what I take away from this is just that it's so important to not so strongly hold our beliefs that we felt once about whether it be comfort or perception of something and always call into question 
Um, was that a reliable feeling? And that's where I think there's a, a bit of this art and science that goes on in product development and athlete testing, right? And so could you maybe talk about some of the times where you've either seen perception data not match up to the data you're seeing in the lab, whether that be with a professional athlete um, or whether it just be on yourself and how you've reconciled those things and, and trying to find that balance between art and science. Before I get into that story, I will also say when I was in grad school and I created that protocol, I, I did a protocol myself and I didn't get a single one right. I, I could not tell. So uh, not saying that I should as a researcher, but I also was quite terrible. But to your point, one of my uh, favorite examples of, of this where uh, subject's perception is different than the actual experience comes from a test that happened at Specialized that I was not a part of, but I had heard stories of, where bicycles nowadays are made out of carbon fiber, and there are different ways to lay up the carbon fiber to achieve different uh, stiffness, different compliance rates, different torsional rigidity, etc. And each rider will have a different idea of what they want. Somebody who is focused on sprinting, super high speed, 60 kilometer an hour uh, sprint finishes, straight lines versus a person who's just trying to go uphill really fast might have different wants and needs and desires in frame design. And so the engineers that Specialized created three different layups of a prototype frame. The head riders test these bikes out on the road and the researchers and engineers put different shape stickers a triangle, a circle, and a square uh, on the underside of the top tube so that their participants couldn't see, but the researchers could go back and look. And they did perception questionnaires and did all these, collect all these metrics to figure out what riders liked the most. <laughs> and riders would say, I like the triangle, or I would like, you know, like one the best because it felt the stiffest when I was putting out power in a sprint. When in fact, that bike was the least stiff. <laughs> So humans are not always good and may, again, to your point about preconceived notions, may look at a bike. And this is another thing I learned in grad school is that comfort can be heavily influenced by aesthetics, the color of the bike, the shape of the bike. It could be affected by what you hear in the news, on a blog, on a podcast like this. So uh, humans don't always know what they want is the moral of that story. Okay, so we don't always know what we want. What is the next step then? What is somebody to do if they're trying to choose something? Like, how do you choose which running shoes you're either going to race or train in? Do you want this from me as a consumer or me as an industry professional or, or both? I don't know. Can you really separate those two out? <laughs> I think at this point, probably not. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's something we we talked about a lot uh, at Specialized because I was always pushing for, hey, we want subjects that can act actually discern differences in product. Whereas some other people are like, no, we are in the business of making product. And when a consumer goes into a shop, every, like you're not, the, the only consumers out there are not the ones that are, can discern. It's all the range of consumers, whether they can discern or not. And so maybe we don't need to worry about whether a subject can discern. So uh, I'm, I'm personally, like I would love to continue product development where we do pick discerning individuals, but I think it, it kind of has to go from a product development standpoint, like what's what's the goal of the product and how important important is it? Is it worth the time and money to go do a big study of 100 different people to find 15 that can actually discern? Um, so I, I think from a product development standpoint, the best way to do that is find people in your local area where you're doing testing who you know can discern and create a test pool and then just continually use them to do product development. Um, which may be easier said than done. Yeah, which is um, maybe sometimes why Jesse and myself aren't invited to do each other's studies because we're not super perceptive. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a really impactful study from 2001. Um, Munderman is the senior author, and Ben Onig is uh, or Ben Onig is the senior author, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And that was one of the first studies that sort of found the idea that, especially for military recruits the comfort that they perceived in um, shoe inserts was predictive of injury rate. So in people that it was sort of a randomized controlled trial where people were able to pick inserts that felt more comfortable or less comfortable, there was a slight reduction in injury rate in the less comfortable. However, like we said, um, injury risk is really multifaceted. And so this, in this case, the military recruits were all doing exactly the same thing, which maybe helped us unconfound some of these aspects. But 
you know, Jesse, I think again to you, like if you're picking out a shoe or a quiver of shoes for racing and training, what variables do you try to optimize for right now, knowing all the things that you know about it? I, I think now that I've transitioned from, from triathlon to marathons and I'm running more miles that I, on a weekly basis and I have in my life, I, I try to have a rotation of shoes with different purposes. And so for my race shoes, I'm looking at the literature to see what shoes have been tested in a lab that have the highest level of improvement in, in running economy. And I'm less concerned about, um, let's say, stability in turns. Uh, living in Boulder, Dan and I are, are luckier, I guess you could say, to be surrounded by a lot of very elite and professional athletes, uh, specifically like short course triathletes, where they're doing these very tight circuits with lots of tight turns. And you talk to someone and they're like, oh, I don't like the Nike Alpha Flash shoe because it feels really unstable in course. However, I like the Asics or the Hoka or the Nike Vaporfly. I like those. For me, if I'm in a race, marathons typically are pretty straight with not that many turns. I'm less concerned about stability. I just want a shoe that is going to be the fastest. So that's how I'm going to pick my race shoe. In terms of the other part of my rotation, I, I do as bad as I am at distinguishing differences in shoes. I'm going to go off of comfort to an extent. I personally like the feeling of a bit squishier shoe for a recovery day. So I'll go try on some shoes at the store and, you know, probably in, in falling prey to some, some marketing schemes about what shoes are recovery shoes and which are not, but I'll go try them on two different shoes on each foot and what feels a little bit squishier for a recovery day. That's what, that's what I'm going to choose. And I'll also make sure there are no pain points. Right. And that's like, that's, that's going to of course be important. Like I don't want a shoe that's going to give me a blister, but um, I, I also think I'm lucky enough to, maybe not be perceptive and can deal with a lot of different different things. Um, but I mean, yeah, as, as much as I can harp on people aren't perceptive and you have to be careful with comfort. Yeah. It's still part of my, my personal algorithm because it's easy, I suppose, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but it is easy to use that as a metric. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you bring up the, the last point I really want to touch on um, in this conversation is the difference between in lab and out in the real world environments. And so for me, how I've thought about this and the reason this jogged my memory was you talked about most marathon shoes and most marathons are relatively straight. You know, um, I think the Ineos 159 challenge was, um, as well as the race in Vienna, they were really popular because they, they were incredibly flat and incredibly straight. And so you didn't have to have a lot of that side to side stability. Um, within our lab at BOA, we obviously think a ton about how can we connect a shoe better to a person's foot and basically make fit better. And so for us, we found that actually testing in the lab, those results often differ when we go out onto the trail. And so we published a paper recently where we took 30 athletes out onto the trail and we measured surrogates of what we can measure in the lab. It's always a little bit less impactful or a little bit less precise than we get in the lab. And there's variables like how hot it is and, and some other variables. So it's important to have a lot of people. But we found that matters a ton. And sometimes the results in lab and on trail, in our case, differed tremendously. Could you maybe talk about some of the things that you've done? I know, especially in the cycling space, to try to bridge that gap between our lovely lab where everything's controlled and in the real world where nothing's controlled. First, I want to say I believe I was a participant in that study. And I believe that I had just come off COVID uh, when I did that. And it was a very hot day. And then I got home. And I received a text from you asking why I was so slow on that day. So uh, that was that was much appreciated, and that's how you should treat all your subjects. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a very hard day for me, and it should have been. But it was I, I enjoyed that study, seeing uh, the efforts you guys made to take the lab out onto the out into the field, onto the trail, because I, I agree that it's it's super important. And in the in the cycling world, I, I think a, a good example of this is. Again, going back to the metabolic fit, our, our first iteration of this was on a stationary trainer indoors. We started off with not very many uh, floor fans to keep a rider cool. And then after a few iterations, we realized how miserable it was and how not realistic. So we added some fans. We unfortunately didn't stick it in the wind tunnel for logistical reasons, but we bought like three floor fans and put it in front of an athlete. And then that eventually iterated to let's take this off of a stationary trainer and let's go to a velodrome and so a velodrome is is anywhere from 150 to i want to say 400 meter track for cycling 
Kipling, and maybe the editor in this can fact check me on that. I don't, I don't know exactly, but uh, it's it's a it's a track that you can ride bikes on, so it's a very still controlled environment, but it allows an athlete to actually have to balance on the bike, put out power, feel the wind, and get a little bit more realistic as they have to make slight left turns. And so we iterated this protocol to adjust it to actually go on on a, on a velodrome. And so we did that by basically saying, okay, instead of hitting uh, a certain power, you're going to want to hit like a certain speed. And then we eventually iterated back to, to power. But this enabled an athlete to take out the discomfort of riding an indoor trainer, as a lot of these professional athletes uh, do not like riding indoors for various reasons. And so they were much more keen on the protocol when it was actually on a velodrome. Uh, and they're able to get actual race day feelings. I remember the first time that we did that protocol, the first athlete finished the first round of testing. I was like, wow, that felt like a proper race effort. Like, okay, great. That's exactly what we wanted. And so it, it allows the coaches and allow the athletes to actually get into a race mindset or a race type venue and make it, make it realistic. And so it, it led to instilled confidence, I think, in the results. When it was a lab-based test, a lot of the, the athletes and coaches are like, okay, we get it. We'll use it as a guide, but we're still going to trust it. Arrow more. And with it elsewhere, uh, Velodrome, now there's a bit more belief. Yeah, I mean, I think on a Velodrome, obviously, you still need to look forward, even though you're only turning left. Typically, mm-hmm. that's important. The same exact thing can be said for trail running. I think there are a ton of assumptions. You know, for example, one of the early studies, um, also Darren Stefanisham and Ben O'Neig, they looked at just adding a carbon fiber plate to basically stiffen the midsole in running economy on a treadmill. And they found that athletes were about 1% faster with just that plate. And we obviously know the results of the 4% study that you were a co-author on where combining stack height, combining a specific type of foam, um, combining this plate as well as a number of other factors, athletes can improve uh, 4% relative to a control condition. There are two things that I think I would love for trail runners to take away from this is one that's done on a treadmill and how many of you are doing a lot of your training or racing on a treadmill. And it's not a lot. We've seen times and instances where the results from on a treadmill differ dramatically to what we see on the trail. Um, we've seen people that on a treadmill, they're better with a carbon plate and then on the trail, they're worse with the carbon plate. And so, you know, again, obviously not everybody has the ability to just go and metabolically test or aerodynamically test people, but challenging the assumptions and probably at this point, the best case is to go by feel, is to take the options that you're considering out into the environment you're using them in and just don't have too strong of preconceived ideas. You know, back to Jesse's triangle test. I know it's not your triangle test, but the triangle test, like we don't always perceive exactly the world in the most um, true of lenses. And so with that, I think um, for trail runners, taking the results that we see in the um, in the lab and extrapolating them in the trail is, is challenging. And I hope we see more and more studies being done on the trail. There are a number of groups looking at quantifying technicity of trails, looking at how much harder it is to run on trails. It's up to 10% harder to run the same pace and gradient on a trail. And based on all these things, I think there's a ripe area for more investigation so that consumers can ultimately make sure that what they're getting uh, was tested properly on a trail. Um, Jesse, you know, I really want to thank you for your time today. I want to wrap up with, um, just the, the last kind of questions is just saying, how are you applying to this? You've got grandma's marathon coming up and then Jesse and I are actually both pacing our friend JP Giblin at Western States this year, taking all of the things that we talked about today, whether it be perception, whether it be shoe selection, um, or training, what are some of the things that you've done that help you prepare for these races coming up? Yeah, again, I think the uh, first thing I think of is, is race shoes. You know, I've, I've looked at the, the literature and looked at some individual case studies and picked a, a race shoe based off that. Um, I, I also, I think figuring out uh, um, how to train in these super shoes also, and this, I mean, this is a whole other can of worms, but do you only, as a triathlete, bring out your race equipment on race week? Do you train them uh throughout the entire training cycle to try and get your adaptations and make sure your body can handle it. Um, so this is to your point of actually going into the field and, and testing out what you're going to use on race day. Um, also very big on uh, nutrition. As Dan knows, I'm fond of eating a lot during our two-hour long runs when Dan doesn't eat anything and I have a Rice Krispie Treat and three gels. But, uh, you know, I like to make sure my, my equipment, equipment does work. Um, 
when it comes to, comes to you know trail vest too, uh, I I will go into a, a running store and like put it on and actually make sure I can reach all the pockets. <laughs> you know, I think I think not being afraid to put it into the environment that you're going to use it. And like we've talked about, everybody has certain quirks that they need to take into consideration, and you have to embrace them and just make sure that you're supporting yourself with equipment, with training, or whatever, and the best way that you can. I mean, when I bought my car, I legitimately laid down in the back of the car in the dealership to make sure I could sleep in it. So uh, I think I, I take that mindset across the board for uh, for running technology as well. I never expected this podcast would reach all the way into automotive consumer reports. Jesse, <laughs> it's been awesome having you. Anything else you want to let the audience know before we, we wrap up here? Uh, well, you talked about my racing. You've got, you've got a race coming up too. Dan will be racing the, the Leadville Trail Marathon, same weekend as Grandma. So uh, good luck to that. Like, let, me, let me throw the question back to you, actually. How are you picking your equipment for that race? Yeah, so I guess to be completely transparent, I obviously have a number of shoes that we've brought into the lab at BOA that I've tested. And so I have metabolic data myself in the lab as well as data on the trail as to what shoe gives me the best heel hold. That's something that we found in the trail space actually is really strongly predictive of both ankle stability as well as just efficiency in general. Um, and the way we measure this just really simply is as somebody lands, um, we call that stance phase. And in the second half of stance, that's when your heel is starting to come up off the back of the shoe. And we can measure the contact between your heel and the insole during the second half of stance phase. And so for me, what I found is um, the Speedland GS TAM gives me incredible heel hold. It gives me really great performance. And then I've actually measured my data with and without a carbon fiber plate. And for me, I was better without a carbon fiber plate. I don't know if that's because I'm a four-foot striker. I don't know if it's just due to the geometry of the shoe, but I've taken all those things into consideration, and I've done a number of more technical trails with a variety of different shoes, and that's how I came out to race in what I'm going to race in. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. This has been awesome. This is another episode of the Science of Performance podcast, a uh, podcast in the Free Trail Network that's sponsored by Boa Technology, and we really Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com, or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you. Thank you.